This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Climate Action Show, broadcasting from 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. We'd like to pay our respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, from whose land we are recording. Tonight we'll meet climate activists. Some of them have written their body weight in submissions and petitions and they've rallied and blockaded and worried as emissions rise. Some of them are new to being awoken up to the climate disruption that we're causing. They are realising that we need a regenerative culture to prevent social collapse. Extinction Rebellion has been encouraging that. One of the founders of Extinction Rebellion in England is Gail Bradbrook. In conversation here with another scientist, she speaks about honouring the grief and emotion around climate catastrophe, which is now hitting many people. The children feel it, and we need to honour it in order to drive the courage to rebel. Actually, what I want to say, though, is what and how you and I were talking before is, and to the men especially, actually, what you have to do is feel this. Mm. You really have to feel it, in my experience. And I'm going to use this language, and if it lands or not, I apologise, but um, the patriarchy damages men profoundly, and it stops you from feeling things in a really deep way. And I'm sorry, because it's not okay. You know, many men, I'm not going to do this to you, but I haven't cried for a long time. And what I see is women. The Dalai Lama said the change would come from women. And it comes from women especially, and it's not, I know I'm generalising, right? It comes from women because we'll feel this thing and the children are feeling it. And when you feel something, you don't do it for a cal- You don't look after your kids because some calculation told you that, you know, your genes are going to go on to the next. You love them, right? You love your children. It's a felt thing. We have to love life on earth. And when you face these times, and this is the conversation yeah. you and I had, <laughs> was we, Gabriel and I actually shared some tears in the, in the, in the back room. Uh, when you feel it deeply and I hadn't done it as an environmental activist actually your heart breaks open and it's grief is the price of love and when you love deeply courage is the driving force and these times as much as clever solutions are needed and this technology and the brilliant thinking of people like Kate and others what it really requires from us is to love from the depth of our beings and to bring our best selves forwards in purpose you know, what is your purpose? When you, you know, we're all going to die at some point, and I really don't care, actually, if it's next week or in 10 years. I don't, I don't have a desire to live a long life. I have a desire to be here right now, living in purpose. And that comes from connecting in the depths of you. And I really, um, I'm actually going to meet somebody called Nathan Roberts next from the Band of Brothers who works with men. I really um, hope you men can get it together to start feeling this stuff um, in whatever way you, you can. And I, I honestly don't mean that as a criticism. Um, so so uh, there's a lot to pick up on there. Um, what I would say is that the thing that I didn't tell you about when I said I went on that march, now I'm uh, obviously a woman, but I am also a pointy-headed scientist. And, and you know, we, we, we're logical, we're sensible, and we get on with things and we test things. And I spent most of my time in the climate movement or dealing with climate change at all 
just getting on with it. What are the solutions? If you're not trying to find a solution, get out of my way. But I did walk along that street, seeing those kids marching, and I did cry on the street. People looking at me like a crazy person and, and walking past. And I've never done that over climate change before. Our next guest is Jonathan Doig. He has been a climate campaigner for years, and he's a friend of Beyond Zero Emissions. So welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Vivian. I met you at an emotional debriefing session last week after the Spring Rebellion. I thought it was really beautiful. We were in the park and the sun was setting, it became dusk, and these sort of people who'd never met each other were debriefing from something that had been quite a big event in our lives. I thought that Extinction Rebellion was offering us something new, at least a chance to, you know, speak and be heard. And I wanted to ask you about the culture of care that Extinction Rebellion is so consciously creating. You know, on TV we see the rebels being dragged away by police here and overseas, you know, dragged away by police. But behind the scenes we know there are legal observers and people dedicated to wait for the arrested people, even if it's after midnight, they're still waiting. What was your experience of being arrested the um, Watch House? Okay, so I was arrested on the 7th, October the 7th, which is the first day of the Spring Rebellion, in the um, Take Back the Streets protest, which happened uh, just down from Railway Square, down Broadway. And um, about three or 400 of us sat down on the road and um, the police said, you know, if you do not move, you will be arrested. <clears throat> and at that point, I had decided that I was willing to be arrested and I said, look, I'm sorry, but this is a climate emergency and we've tried everything else. Uh, we're running out of time and we have to do mass civil disobedience. So they arrested me and, um, and dragged me away. I, I refused to walk, but um, I didn't resist arrest. Um, and one of the police had me in the, the compliance hold, which is bending the wrist and was just holding it firmly. The other one was doing the same thing, but really pushing it as hard as it'd go and really had me in quite severe pain. And he kept that up all the way down, um, like about 80 metres to the police van. And even when I stood in the queue, he was still applying that pain until I pointed out that, you know, look, you both have me in the same hold and one of you is hurting me and one isn't. So at that point, it was pretty clear that, um, you know, sadism was a choice that this fellow was making and, and that the other policeman was just doing his job. Yeah, well, um, so we were watching television while we were in the cells and we saw ourselves on, on the program on Channel 9 News and then a police officer came and changed the channel, but he changed it to ABC News so that we could actually watch ourselves over and over again getting arrested and I saw myself on the program there. And there were a lot of us in the cells together and we... Um, we were singing various songs and chants and cheering as people came in. So it was a pretty pretty buoyant feeling. Um, and then when I was um, released, um, I went out and there, were, there was a group there at 10.30 at night still waiting to give me a hug and to feed me cookies. And mm. actually my mum was there. She'd seen <laughs> the ABC News and she was waiting. And, uh, yeah, so I got a hug from her too. That so that that was really good. But but what I meant when I met you and I said it was the one of the best days of my life was I've spent the last ten years fighting for climate action and I actually briefed Scott Morrison because I'm in the I started the local Sutherland Climate Action Network which um, is in the the Shire where he is the the local MP now and when he first started as an MP he came to our climate candidates forum 
Have you ever heard of a Liberal coming to a, a climate no. forum? Anyway, he did that, um, to his credit, and I gave him the book um, by David Spratt and Philip Sutton, Climate Code Red, and then gave him a briefing along with two scientists, one of whom had actually lectured him in climate science, Fred huh. Bell. Uh, because, because Morrison has a degree in science from UNSW, same degree as I have, but his major's in economic geography, and he actually studied climate science. So Good heavens, I he thought he was no just excuse. an advertising man. Yeah, and, and we, we briefed him in the science of the emergency and asked him to speak out, and of course he didn't, and you know, tried everything that we could. And you know, it's now 12 years later, eight, uh, 11, 12 years later, and, he's, and in the, the situation's just desperate. But... Um, since the Copenhagen debacle, um, when the, where the politicians failed us then, I've just in, felt increasingly disempowered, just hopeless, desperate about the situation. And that changed when I was arrested. I, I felt this is a rebellion, this is a new step. Um, and just the action of doing what I knew to be right and stepping it up one level... Um, gave me it brought me into my power so yeah. since then I've, I've been doing other things with a new energy that uh, that i had didn't have before That's and i know that the rebellion will wax and wane but i think yeah. it's here to stay and and it's only going to grow. Well, that's because I think they've got... It's underpinned by quite a well-studied philosophy and, you know, historical precedents. And what I've read, the Extinction Rebellion people want to regenerate culture and they, they want to nurture a different way of being together and changing the conversation, but not by naming and shaming and polarising people. And I've, I've found I've lost friends over this over the years. You know, I come across as too zealous and ardent and uh, they just don't want to think about it. They want to keep their head in the sand and it's so comfortable there. Yeah, look, it's, it certainly feels different. And, and I think there's a, there's a lot of insights in it too, the, the not blaming and shaming. Part of that is acknowledging that we are all part of the problem. You know, anybody who lives a Western lifestyle, even those of us who, who try to minimise our our footprint, we're still emitting carbon, we're still buying food that's transported with fossil fuels, we're still part of a whole system. We can't individually solve this and none of us can claim to be perfect. And so, you know, there was a Jonathan Pye, the British comedian, did a great video on it. Uh, uh, you can choose to be a hypocrite, as, as we are. We're, we're complaining about the system that we're a part of. Or you can be an asshole. And you, can, <laughs> you can label those, you know, you could call us hypocrites and, and just stand on the sideline throwing stones at us. But I'd rather be a hypocrite and acknowledge that and, and just acknowledge that, yeah, we're part of the problem too, but it's a problem. We've got to deal with it. You know, that's the thing. The science is stark. You were awakened to this a long time ago, as were all the Beyond Zero Emissions people, and we've mm. been putting out those blueprints of how this sector could do it and how that sector could do it. But now we're yeah, on to this. Yeah, that's been fantastic work, by the way. I've just yeah. loved all of Beyond Zero's work. It's been so focused on 
the actual science, you know, let's not do half measures, let's look at the problem and how do we respond to it yeah. as quickly as we can. And making it manageable, it looks manageable. You, you could implement mm. those policies, you know. I'm still waiting mm. for the high-speed rail from Melbourne to Brisbane. But anyway, yeah. I think, um, thank you, because I appreciate you've had this long identification with this, whereas other people are new to it. But thank you. We've been speaking to Jonathan Doig. organization been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organizational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organizational group behind Melbourne's longest running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 and become an organisational subscriber. Show, Show your, your love, love 3CR. 3CR. I Our next guest has been living in Berlin and I want to ask him about the Extinction Rebellion recent events there and what led him to be there. Welcome, Rohan. What happened? Yeah, so I've, I've moved to, to Berlin about five years ago and, um, and I got quite interested uh, in Extinction Rebellion while I've been there. Um, yeah, it is a little bit different in Germany, so they have a, a very mature protest culture. I think there was about 6,000 people protesting. Um, in fact, the Berlin government approved a climate camp directly in front of the German parliament, the Reichstag, and um, about 5,000 people um, were approved to sleep in a camp uh, for the entire week there. And there was um, you know, space for, obviously, tents. Um, there were eco-toilets. There was an info um, tent. They even had a stage and a kitchen. And, um, and yeah, basically it was all run by volunteers. Um, they, they had an art space, you know, for making colourful, child-friendly banners. Um, and even a, uh, a regeneration sort of area. So they had a safe space, people um, that had a friendly ear, counsellors as well, mm. um, and, a, and a spot for yoga and meditation. And this all took place directly in front of the grass of, um, of Parliament, and it was a really, um, it was a really fantastic vibe. In Germany, it's very different. So because of this mature protest culture, they, the poli- people see police as protection, especially when you're doing a demonstration. So you might be protected from 
from other, you know, counter-demonstration uh, folks or from, you know, in this case, maybe angry car drivers or, or what have you. But I was actually carried away in one blockade in Potsdamer Platz. And um, some of the mechanisms that Ex- Extinction Rebellion use, basically, uh, are pretty, pretty fantastic. So, you know, someone on a megaphone organised a collective ORM sort of just as a mechanism to bring down any tension and encourage folks to sort of breathe during the during the entire blockade and in fact during the entire week I think um, because of one of the principles of Extinction Rebellion of no blaming no shaming the police were treated with complete respect and even after I was carried away which you know I was cheered on by other um, members of the watching public the police were thanked by everyone including those that were that were carried away um, for doing their job and we recognise that they do their job to protect us, and we thank them for that. That we, you know, we hope that, that we try to get the impression across that we're just doing our job um, in terms of trying to get the message out there, basically. Oh, well, um, were you were you arrested? I mean, do you have to face court? No, I was not arrested. So basically, in Germany, if you don't have resistance, if you don't show any resistance, so basically you're carried away passively after you've been told to leave a certain place three times on a loudspeaker. If you're carried away, it's basically the same penalty, the same legal penalty as a parking infringement. So you would only generally get arrested if you were perhaps showing resistance, and of course that can be deemed resistance, but if you lock on to a particular building or, or, or something like that, or to another person, this is generally what's considered a, a, a higher criminal mm. offence, and those people are taken into custody. And I think out of the 6,000 people that protests. I think only about 15 people were taken into custody and we had a lot more mm. um, lock-ons and, and glue-ons than, than, than that. So, um, yeah, and um, yeah, it, was a, it was an amazing experience. After I was taken away by the police, I was sort of, you know, um, I was told not to return to the site for 24 hours and there was somebody from the regeneration team who thanked me, offered me a hug and offered me some chocolate just to make sure that I was okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, even though, like I mentioned, it's uh, it's a little less intimidating than it might be in in Australia. You know, one of those real strengths with um, Extinction Rebellion is 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 this sort of self discipline, and um, and you know that's part of this regenerative culture. It's essentially, you know, there's there's many many different ways that this is sort of uh, exhibited across the week. But you know, that you know, the very fundamental one is to have a buddy system, and so that no one's left alone. You know, we promote self care so that you look after yourself, and you. People are encouraged to walk away if it's feeling like it's too much for them, and to also look out for those around you. You know, yes, we we had a we had a, a, a debriefing um, a daily plenum, so this is like a debriefing, um, I guess, open meeting for all, um, and we sort of talked about um, you know the challenges that we saw, the things that we thought worked well, the things we thought worked not so well, um, and really, you know, Extinction Rebellion promotes. A reflective um, and sort of learning atmosphere where you know everybody can 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 voice what they think, um, how the how the movement should progress and and develop basically. Um, a couple of other things we have in Berlin are sort of um, you know XR cafes, so that's a very informal space. You know this is away from the actions, but you know once a week you might have a, a cafe which is prepared to allow you know 10, 20, however many people to sit around and discuss issues that are important to them. We also have group meditations and hours of silence um, at particular at particular points to sort of build that um, that consciousness, basically. Oh, thank you for telling us about that. Sure. You know, coming back to climate change, what do you think is the way forward for climate action? What are the, what's the path that you see? 
Well, that's a tough one. I mean, I think um, this is just the start, basically. Extinction Rebellion is, you know, you've got to remember, it's only started, I think, in October 2018. And there was was about 10 or 15 people that got together and and one of them had studied um, social, how to achieve social change. Um, But I think a lot of them have been involved in activism for a long time. And, And I think, you know, Extinction Rebellion is just one of many different activism groups but this one, for me at least, feels different. It's this very, you know, um, I guess, human compassion and love being at the core of everything that is done um, in this movement is um, is something that maybe sets it apart. You know, that without having any violence, without having any judgment, it's to say, hey, you know, this is the way that we can attract the majority of people that have the same vested interest. You know, they have their lives at risk or at climate change, whether it's in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever your view may be, everybody has something to lose as a part of this. And, um, and I think that's what makes this, um, makes this group a little bit different. And obviously, it may take time. We don't have a lot of time, but um, I think if we sort of stick to the principles and um, it will just grow and grow and grow. And we've already seen, I think there's like something like 150 countries have now got Extinction Rebellion um, you know, presence. And I think 56 countries were participating yeah, um, and in the uh, in the waves, and so you know this is just the beginning. I think it's gonna it's gonna grow, and and you see it also in the in the mass media and and in politics sphere that you know the the attention is being brought to this topic. It just needs to accelerate at a yeah. at a pretty astounding rate. So yeah. Really, thank you for talking to us. Not a problem. Thank you very much, and I appreciate uh, having a great show like yours, uh, Vivian. It's fantastic. Okay, thank you. At a regenerative culture workshop, I met a writer called Trevor Woodward. He's writing a novel. So welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, Trevor. Thank you very much, Vivian. Tell us what led you to this book. Uh, I needed an outlet to um, express the complexity of all of this, and I could write. I've been a uh, commercial writer all my life, so uh, I decided to fictionalise a story, how we got to the stage where we have and how it impacts people and, and maybe what we can do about it. Amitav Ghosh wrote a book saying that there was a great scarcity of literature about this and we need the imaginative work to take us in to another world. And I'm worried that most writers think, oh, straight, they go straight to dystopia. Is that what you've done? Uh, no, I, look, I, I think the subject matter lends itself to a dystopian picture, if you like, in, in the sense of a cautionary tale. Everyone remembers George Orwell's 1984 from their school days. But what we do remember is, I remember it being quite a bleak novel sometimes. It has stuck with me through my life as, as, a, as a cautionary tale to look out for the telltale signs of, of encroaching authoritarianism. While it, it can be dystopian subject matter or perceived that way, really we're, we're looking at the human stories coming out of uh, quite an incredible situation. Part of regenerating our culture is to cut through the toxic media uh, climate that we've got. It's full of scorn and denial, and I just don't know how they get away with it most of the time. I don't know why people are so foolish as to just swallow that stuff. It's hateful usually. But Extinction Rebellion is inviting writers to change the narrative. And I'd like to know what that would look like, a new narrative, you know, thinking about regenerative culture. I, I think a new narrative would start with acknowledging what's going on. And, and um, I note that uh, one of the demands of Extinction Rebellion, number one, tell the truth. Once we start 
to do that, then we can work towards you know solutions. Maybe that's one of the missing pieces in in the um, overall general public conversation around it. You know, it's the farmer who gets up in the morning and he just sees his parched lands every day and what he feels. You know, that gut wrenching thing that he might feel when he picks up the dirt and it runs through his hands and he thinks about the generations of father of his family that came before him that poured their energies into that land. Mm. Um, those are the human impacts of climate change, and if we're going to make any difference, uh, it'll it, it'll be at that grassroots human level. And uh, I, I, I think empathy is a very, very big and important tool here. And really, that's what creative writers are uh, good at. That's their stock in, tra- in trade is empathy. Mm. Yeah, I'd lo- I'd love in that scenario. I'd love to have a story where the um, person from the government or from the agricultural department comes out as in a Roosevelt era New Deal and says we're going to you're going to stay on this farm we're going to pay you to manage this land differently we're going to regenerate this land and you're go- this is you're not going to have to worry about money that we're going to revegetate it we're you know rehydrate it uh, there's lots of precedents but uh, you know if you could see that as a possibility it did happen in history you know with the, the it, it, dust bowl. It did. It certainly did, and um, and I think it's being proposed again in America, the Green Deal or TES. Yeah. And and yeah, really, uh, in that second, you know, the John Steinbeck's uh, the the Grapes of Wrath. Oh um, yeah. It would be good to have a Green Deal type um, inclusion. That's right. I think stories like that might help us think about it. And at that workshop, I made a comment. You know, we went around the circle, and people made comments, and I said, I think. Dot, dot. And the woman uh, who was managing the session said, no, what do you feel? And I had to switch register to sort of say, well, what do you feel? And I thought, this is good. This is something, it's just a very small change of tone. But I think uh, the regenerative culture is about that, tapping into the feelings, not denying them, and not making everything so cerebral, like we'll just have all these policies with wind turbines and solar power stations and it'll all be fine. It's got to be a a kind of a feeling response. And my problem is that I I know, everything I see, that we're living in a time, it seems to me, like vulture capitalism, is terrifically deteriorating conditions for most for many people but I can't really imagine an alternative economic and political order and I wonder you know you're writing a novel and what sort of where has your imagination led you into thinking of a different way that things without there's also the possibility of collapse maybe we have to collapse the present system and then create another one but where's your imagination led you on that my, my novel um Taking more or less of a, um, you know, destroy the system and create another system, rather than it's it's more about actually taking on the existing system and refining it. So, for example, uh, I think the reason why we're polarised dreadfully is because the oil companies and the Koch brothers, when they first started to put about fossil fuel propaganda, they chose to do it through right-wing foundations and right-wing lobby groups. And they chose to set an environment where, whereby if you were right-wing, you wouldn't believe in climate change, you wouldn't believe in the science. So they politicised the science. So step number one would be to unpoliticise the science. And funnily enough, I believe that that's one of the Extinction Rebellion uh, objectives, which is beyond politics. So I, I, I think when you start to do that, then you're not looking at having to reinvent the system, but rather 
take out those bits about the system that aren't working and put your energies into mending that. And sure, there are some fundamental issues. For example, you know, the profit motive may not take into account economic externalities, i.e., you know, um, carbon pollution. We need to fix those, those things. It doesn't require a complete overhaul of capitalism uh, and it doesn't, doesn't require a Marxist takeover of the world. It requires factoring into your economics the cost of pollution to the rest of the world, for example. Okay, so, so is that what your hacker does? Is that what's going to happen in the story? So the hackers really, uh, the hackers there is a device to try and understand how we got to the situation whereby we've got a very small industry lobby group, if you like, uh, influencing the media, how the science is perceived, and really the course of the planet in terms of uh, the actions taken to overcome this problem. And then he's going to sabotage them, is that, or he or she? Is that how it works? Not in my first book. It looks like it might uh, be developing into a series. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be sorting out the bad guys in, in the following books. Okay. Well, look, I, I hope this becomes a, a, a trilogy or a series that people won't be able to put down. So just tell us, Pardon? do you have a name yet or a working title? I have a working title, Anthropocide. So oh. taking, taking, you know, uh, anthropo, human, mm. uh, and side, um, or sidic death. Right. All right. Oh, well, the, a lot of the Extend- Extinction Rebellion people have that little boat there called, it's named the Polly Higgins, and she invented the term ecocide. So that's what yeah. we're actually creating now. So let's, um, let's wait for your book. So thank you very much. We've been talking to a writer. Trevor Woodward? Yeah, Trevor Woodward. Sorry, I was <laughs> looking at my notes. I couldn't find the top of them. But thank you, Trevor, for talking to us, and good luck with your book. I hope we can speak to you again when it's finished. Thank you. Tom Colley is our next guest. He was at a regeneration workshop I attended at UTS. He was also arrested in the Spring Rebellion in Sydney. So welcome, Tom. Tell us how your life led you to that day when you were arrested. Um, after having been in, um, in environmental management, career focus for some time, I, I ended up doing a PhD, building social capacity to meet environmental crisis. Findings were very much a, a model of capacity building. That model had ingredients such as a focus on saying that basically sort of saying that people who were working in this field had strong commonalities around the idea that inclusiveness was central to building this capacity, that the use of collaborative and non-hierarchical processes was central. So too was Um, power sharing and so models of power with rather than power over were needed and also in that area was that the very very powerful notions that we needed uh, to rebuild our sense of a stronger sense of connectedness with our environment as well as with the different parts of our society. I was immediately also struck by the parallels between the principles and values of Extinction Rebellion and the, the, the findings that I'd come up with in my own research Yes, and I think it's interesting that they don't have workshops where they sort of teach you this as a, as a you know, this is, a, this is the way it's got to be. It's all as if all the capacities of all the people who get involved, all the creativity is actually valued and somehow woven into it. Do you feel that? Well, I've seen videos of um, YouTubes of people in London that see all this multiplicity of artists and and grandmothers and all permaculturists and all kind of mixture of people, which the press then distilled down to a certain sort of ridiculous stereotype. It's a very interesting new hybrid of people, don't you feel? 
Absolutely. And the key principle there is about inclusivity, but the other side of the inclusivity coin is you respect and value diversity, not as a a moral, not just as a moral principle, but as a recognition of that. That's what builds strength and resilience. And we're seeing that in the Extinction Rebellion movement, that there's incredible diversity in the the people and their approaches. They're able to come under, you know, the one umbrella around these principles and values. Just now on the personal level, you put your body on the line, you were arrested. How did you feel about the support and the sort of meaning that Extinction Rebellion gave to you? I mean, it's a very serious thing to get arrested. It was. During the arrest itself, that was kind of amazing to see people at work. You know, I was carried limp by the police um, with my hands in a painful wrist lock that um, sprained my right wrist. You know, when I did open my eyes to look around, I um, was incredibly heartened by the number of people I saw taking photos and on videos and really noticing and being there. So the police were extremely conscious of just how visible their activities were and that, um, you know, that the, the abuse, A, the abuse they were conducting, um, was being witnessed and, and B, then greater pieces would would also be recorded. Mm-hmm. So that was a safeguard for anything? It was. Much and worse. On, you know, in further reflection, it really struck me, uh, you know, what, a, what an incredibly collaborative effort it, it was. And that, um, you know, I really recognised, I recognised that the people doing that um, for, for a role that I would have found very hard and very stressful to do mm-hmm. um, and probably couldn't have done it nearly as well as they did. And just how important it is to recognise and value that work, um, not just those who, uh, you know, you know, put themselves on the front of the line and, and get arrested. Yeah. Well, I, I went to another regenerative um, debriefing the other night on Friday and there was a young woman who'd just arrived from London and she'd been at Trafalgar Square and she was telling us everyone was sort of debriefing from the Spring Rebellion. I thought it was very worthwhile that even complete strangers could offer each other a very serious listening you know they could they were taking we were all taking each other seriously and she said that look she said in london the police were actually different than the way it was being described by the australian people she said oh they're they're much more sort of protective and they were until the very end when they cleared everybody out but she said there was one case where someone was locked onto something and it was drizzling rain it was autumn for them cold and they were going to be hours just locked onto this thing and um the police came and put blankets around their shoulders and i thought i can't believe my ears that's fantastic but i think you can put work into that too. That's a regenerative job, isn't it? Liaising with the police and somehow disempowering that viciousness that they can show. Do you think that's possible here or that's unthinkable? I, I think it's, it's, it's possible. I think it's absolutely necessary. The dialogue, you know, maintaining a, um, and developing civil dialogue with the police is, is crucial to, to moving forward because everyone in the police force is equally the, uh, you know, the, the, the victims or subjects of climate change and uh, mass extinction these you know these people are not the enemy you know they're our brothers and sisters they might have a very different perspective but that doesn't mean that you know we can have, afford to have a hostile attitude towards no. them even when when that's what's being expressed towards us you know towards us yeah well look the, at that regenerative workshop we collectively i think the people they were wondering why the public in general seems a bit indifferent to the web of life collapsing around us you know we are t- talking about real extinction and maybe it's because we're disconnected from nature and I wonder is that a connection that can be revived? You know my own sense of it and I've considered this question a lot in in my own 
research and you know talk with people about how that sense of connectedness is developed. I, I, I don't think that leads me to being an expert on, on the subject, but, but from my point of view, certainly, it, that, that sense of connectedness can be revived and rebuilt, and, and in doing so, I think we really greatly rebuild um, the health of the psyche of both individuals and, and the community, and, and the ability to really take um, effective action on the stuff that matters most. How, what would be your approach? You know, you mentioned bushwalking in the Blue Mountains, that sounds delightful, but how would that wreak rekindle that absolute true connection i mean sadly this stuff takes takes time you know we're now you know we're now in emergency and the emergency is going to drive some of the ways that we're capable of responding so rebuilding sense of connectedness with nature is ultimately incredibly important and that's our pathway into the future but um you know in the first instance this is not going to um deliver the um you know the big moments of change that we need no. right now so those activities i mean you've got to, you've, you need exposure to sort of wild Places, not necessarily completely wild places, but the you know the wild whatever wildness is around. Yeah. And um, we also need time for the sort of reflection that allows us uh, our experience of that to be be properly processed. Mm. Um, that's a um, those those processes are quite significant. Um, mm. Mm. Okay, I'll have to leave it there, Tom. Uh, I've heard of doctors giving people a prescription to go out and sit in the forest in Japan. You know, as as real therapy, you know, and I think maybe that our doctors could be prescribing a few of those little activities to us would be very regenerative. But yeah, and there's a lot of research to show that that, that, um, that that type of approach is very effective. Yeah, is there? Okay. Well, look, I, I love hearing about your research, and thank you very much for talking us today to us today. That we've been talking to Tom Colley in Sydney.
Our next guest is Ella. She's a new member of Extinction Rebellion. I'm so grateful that this regenerative culture is a thread that runs through Extinction Rebellion because I don't think activism in this space could be sustainable without it. I mean, the the urgency of the climate emergency is so confronting and sometimes the problems can seem so overwhelming and insurmountable that without a foundation of mutual support and respect and care and compassion, I don't think there's any way that we can survive, let alone make any meaningful impact. So it was a beautiful healing experience for me and I think it was for most people there. What what has been your attitude to climate change before that, before you joined Extinction Rebellion? You know, it's interesting. It's been a a humbling and eye-opening experience. I would describe myself as someone who was in soft climate denial. So I knew that there were problems. I knew that there were serious problems. I understood that certain parts of the world were, um, you know, facing, um, you know, uh, extreme climate events and weather and natural disasters and I I understood that there was a link between climate change and those events but I didn't feel um, the sense of urgency that I now feel and I think what helped take off the blinkers for me was really kind of availing myself of the science and there seems to be consensus in the scientific community. Um, One of the turning points for me was really realizing that Goldman Sachs, a financial multinational financial firm actually draws on the same science that Extinction Rebellion draws on. I feel like that science is pretty watertight. <laughs> so as, as the, the truth and the magnitude of the situation, the, the, the kind of the denial that I was in fell away pretty rapidly and I found myself in, in a state of, sh- I'd say, shock and grief. It was like, you know, losing a, a, a sort of a sense of reality and, and losing a sense of security that I'd previously had. And it's been a process and I sort of, I did the NVDA training, the nonviolent direct action training with Extinction Rebellion on a Sunday. And then the very next day, <laughs> I was um, part of wellbeing support oh. at, uh, at an action where over 30 people were arrested in the centre of Sydney. And um, so it was quite an initiation. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. But I guess the, the grief that I mentioned um, only seems to be alleviated when I'm trying to take some sort of meaningful action um, for future generations. So, you know, that's kind of the way that I'm processing it is through action. Well, the future generations are speaking up, aren't they? The young people, they can't even vote and they've been on this program several times telling me, you know, we only need about 3 or 4% of the whole population to shift uh, you know, to get active, and then mm. the rest of the population will shift, or a good proportion of it. And they they reckon there's you know statistics and research behind that too. I said to one of them, well, how how many people do you think that'd be? And she had the exact answer. She said eight hundred thousand people in Australia. <laughs> I was really impressed that she had it so clear in her mind mm. that if this number of people were out on the streets persistently and in this nonviolent way, non-threatening and even entertaining way with the red rebels and the artistic sort of things that are happening around there it's not the usual suspects it's not the usual way of demonstrating you can't write it off it's sort of fascinating she she sort of felt that if that number of people were out then the culture would start shifting and we're talking Mm. about cultural shift and you were part of this well-being team which it was a really simple but incredibly rewarding role so my job was basically to keep a watchful eye on all of the participants and if anybody looked like they were struggling emotionally or physically to go and and provide them, you know, kind of first aid in whatever form that looked like. So it might have been a conversation, it might have been the offer of a hug, Um, frequently it was water, sunscreen, a little sugar hit. You know, activism is often 
understandably characterised by a great amount of anger and frustration. Um, that makes sense. That's human nature, particularly when the problems are so, you know, so vital and so urgent. But what we're really trying to do is emulate the practices of Mahatma Gandhi and, and Dr. King with, you know, a non-violent strategy where people are looked after so that they can be more effective uh, to keep fighting this this crucial fight. There are going to have to be new foundations created. And, you know, we have the opportunity to, as things kind of fall apart, um, we have the opportunity to be simultaneously building something that's robust and characterised by justice and um, equity and and love, like yeah. you said, love. Yeah. Uh, some of my colleagues on the radio show seem to be, they're much younger than me and they're worried about having children. Can they contemplate having children and the future? You know, it's interesting. I think part of the grief, um, you know, that really slammed me when I when I kind of really had all that denial fall away was understanding that not only was I grieving for, um, you know, this, this false sense of security that I had, but, you know, along with it came um, some grief about dreams that I'd held close. You know, I would love to do things like, I, I guess it's just the Australian dream, um, mm. own a little plot of land that I can mm-hmm. call my own, um, you know, raise children with someone that I love. And I, I've had to kind of... Uh, I guess re-examine um, some of those goals. Uh, do, do I feel like I, I would not have children because of the climate crisis? I think I'd certainly think seriously about how many children that I have. I think I'd certainly think more seriously about adoption or fostering. I also think that you know, if and when I am you know blessed a parent in that way. I mean, I work with children, so I feel like I'm a parent to mm-hmm. you know <laughs> hundreds hundreds of young people, which is which is wonderful. But, you know, if I do end up raising children myself in the role of mother, I think uh, one of my key priorities as a parent will be raising children who have uh, a really uh, sort of an integral social conscience who Mm -hmm. understand that, you know, there are dire problems that the world is facing and that their job is not to find a way to succeed in a broken system, but to, to redress this system so it's more equitable for everybody. And I think in that way, Parenting, whether it looks like having your own children or working with young people and mentoring them, fostering, adopting, um, you know, being an older sibling to somebody. I think all of these ways are ways that we can um, parent in, in, a, in a more meaningful way. Thank you very much, Ella. That was really thoughtful. It's a pleasure.
Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 8377 and become an organisational subscriber. Show Show your your love, love. 3CR. There's a meditation centre called Plum Village in France, whose leader is Thich Nhat Hanh. The next guest is a Buddhist nun from that centre who was in London for the October Rebellion. She talks about how to pace ourselves for the long-term activism that rebelling against extinction requires. It's to prevent burnout. It's the heart of regenerative culture and to take It's all about taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other. It's from a YouTube called How Can We Practice Regenerative Action? First, we have to get enough sleep. I mean, it sounds so simple, um, but for me, like, it's all about the, the, the real core elements of our physical, emotional, and mental well-being. We have sometimes, we do like seven weeks straight, leading retreats for many hundreds of people every week. Uh, as we kind of mentor and support each other, it's always in the most simple things. Are we getting enough sleep? Are we eating enough of the right kind of food, so healthy food, in a peaceful way at the right time? And how can we create conditions to support that, to support eating, sleeping, having enough time to have a shower, like showering is a human right, <laughs> doing our laundry. So like the very simple human basics and as a community, how can we organize a community in such a way that we support that for each other? So I think there's something about our mental well-being is based on our physical well-being. And there are times when we need to push our physical limits And then we also need to know how to rest. And when we're resting our body, how also to rest our mind. In Plum Village, we have a practice we call the lazy day. When we disconnect from technology, disconnect from organization, and we truly allow ourselves to rest. Sometimes it's great to rest with others, to rest with the team that we're working with. So we still feel connected to the enterprise, to the project, but we are... Um, joyfully, relaxingly together in nature, in a park, just drinking tea, mm. sharing meals together. That can be the kind of spirit of a lazy day. Or sometimes we just have to like completely zone out, practice total relaxation and complete stopping of that sort of hyper energy so that the body, to give the body a chance to kind of restore itself. Mm. And I think we can turn to nature to see the kind of examples of how nature does this. Like it's quite rare that there's a flower or a plant that blooms all year round. Mm. You know, a tree or a bush has seasons. There's times of production and creativity and expression and other times that are sort of restorative. So I think also for each one of us, we need to know um, and to be kind of honest with ourselves how to do that. So it's not that you don't have the moments of pushing our limits. I remember one time when we had a meeting with our teacher and he wanted us to do something in a timely way. <laughs> and, uh, and then the bell went in, in the monastery. And so we're like, oh, time for lunch. And he's like, 
you don't need to eat lunch. <laughs> He's like, you can survive without lunch. And we're like, okay, got it. So like there's times when you just have to keep the concentration going and you have to stick through and to continue it. Um, but we, maybe those times are not as often as we think. And so that if there is an opportunity and we to be honest with ourselves, can I eat on time today? Can I just take a 10 minute sort of nap or rest in the office? Um, what can we do to try and sort of only push our extremes when we really have to mm. and to recognize when we've pushed our extreme and then to rest. There's one other thing I'd like to say, which is we may think that like the main action that we are taking is where, when we're on the street mm. and we're doing the thing. So whether it's blocking a bridge, protecting the boat, taking care of other people, for us, our engaged spiritual practice also happens when you're leaving your home and you're walking to the bus stop or to the tube station. The way that we walk can be a moment to regenerate our energy, to restore our peace. We can take 500 yards of that walking distance and we can say to ourselves, I will walk in freedom from this lamppost to the entrance to the tube station. I will do that. And at every step, I resist. So every step can be part of the rebellion. I will not run. I will not be a victim of my fears, my despair, my urgency, my struggle. In this moment, I'm a free person. There is me, the pavement, my steps, the earth, the trees, the morning birds. And for these 500 yards, I am an activist walking in freedom and walking in peace. So there is ways that the, the resistance also expands and the care also expands to moments when we might not naturally think that they are moments of resistance or moments of like self-care and regeneration. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. And thank you uh, to um, Raoul in Sydney who's been helping me at Radio Skid Row to record most of these sessions. I'd also like to thank Dr Gail Bradbrook in London. I took some... Uh, thoughts from her YouTube about regenerative culture Jonathan Doig in Sydney Rohan, Trevor, Tom and Ella who I met at uh, Extinction Rebellion regenerative workshops regenerative culture the ideas are many and various but the main motive is to sustain ourselves that this uh, fight against climate change to get better policies to get a big shake-up of the way we do things, the systems that we operate under, which have become so toxic, we need to sustain that. And a lot of it is about sustaining and caring for each other. The last person to speak was also from YouTube. Her name was Sister True Dedication, and she lives at Plum Village in France, uh, where Thich Nhat Hanh, famous teacher, has been inspiring ideas of peace and survival. We'll go out with a Chilean singer, one of my favourites, Violeta Parra. And I'm thinking tonight of the people out on the streets in Chile. They said it wasn't for the 30 pesos of the uh, railway fares, but it was for the 30 years of oppression and corruption that they feel they've been living under and trying to reclaim their streets, reclaim their democracy and reclaim their dignity to as citizens. So uh, this is Violeta Parra singing La Lucha Continua and it means the struggle will go on. 
So thank you very much for listening. Salut Babette. Good night and good luck. My name is Vivian Langford and the team tonight is Michaela and Andy in Melbourne, Raoul in Sydney and me in between. Thank you. Good night. Amen. Si l'ombre de la costa.